Welcome to episode one of Doctors and Dissertations with Carrie Zeliniak. Today is Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, Election Day. Coming up on tonight's show, an interview with Stockton's newest adjunct lead professor, Dr. John Young. Tonight, we will get to know Dr. Young as he tells us about his career in research, how he came to Stockton University, and how to choose the perfect dissertation topic right for you. Thank you for coming, Dr. Young. Thanks, Carrie, for inviting me. Sure. So just to get started, I'm sure everybody is interested in how, how did you come to Stockton? Um, the, do the two terms, rock band and research, tell a story of how you <laughs> arrived here? <laughs> so apparently you know more about the story than, uh, than you've led, led me to believe. Yes, um, uh, I came to know the program at Stockton through your dean, uh, Claudine Keenan. Uh, I met Claudine at the 2014 uh, Northeastern Educational Research Association Conference. Uh, that was actually the year I was the president of the organization. And I met her at that conference. And uh, by tradition, we always have dancing. And so that's, that's how I got to know Claudine. Um, the program uh, was just starting up. So she had told me about it and we kept in touch about it. Um, I had been working uh, in Bethesda, Maryland from uh, 2015 to 2017. So I didn't have a chance to, um, to be involved in the program. But then I came back to New Jersey uh, at the end of 2017, and she put me in touch with George Sharks. And so I became a guest lecturer in the 6070 course, both in September of 2018 and then also September of 2019. And then when the opportunity came up to teach uh, the 6100 course, she reached out to me uh, in May of earlier this year. And so that's how it came about. I hear you mentioned the 6100 course. Well, what is that exactly? So that's the uh, quantitative and qualitative research methods course, uh, one of the required courses in the program. And I'm actually teaching both sections this semester. I'm teaching both cohort four and cohort five. Uh, the program faculty made a decision to move 6100 to the second year of the program which is, uh, at least from my experience, the more common pacing, the more common sequencing. And so that's why I'm teaching both of, of the sections currently. Um, here, here's a little bit of uh, uh, trivia. Um, Professor Tracy Schneider, who left um, Stockton, um, she had been a faculty member for two years. Uh, her mom got her doctorate at Rutgers. I was actually her graduate advisor and a member of her dissertation committee. So, um, so I've actually known the Schneider family for a long time. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so you kn you knew her for a long time. You worked with her mother um, at Rutgers. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So her her mother Pam got her doctorate at Rutgers in the mid '90s, and um, I was her graduate advisor and dissertation chair. And I actually had not been in touch with her for a while, but then. Once I got reconnected with Stockton, I had a chance to have dinner with both uh, Tracy and her mom, Pam, who I, who I had not seen probably in about 15 years. So it was great to see them together. Just, just wondering, what, what was Pam's doctorate in? Uh, so hers was uh, in the same field as mine, which is educational statistics and measurement. Um, I don't remember the topic for dissertation, but it was something that was statistical. So um, the program that we were in specializes in training people who are using um, statistical methods, uh, doing work in educational measurement and in evaluation. Okay. 
So you've been at this a long time, haven't you? <laughs> yes, I have. Uh, I've been an educational researcher for the entirety of my career. Um, so I'm actually in the 40th year in this occupation. Um, uh, most of the time I was a uh, faculty member at Rutgers. I was a professor in the Graduate School of Education for 17 years and have gone on to other um, leadership, research leadership positions in the private non nonprofit sector. Oh, okay. How did you um, come to value education? It seems like like that's like the strongest thing in your life. What what made you have this thirst for knowledge or this love for education? Yeah, so I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think uh, the valuing of education, I think, is both a family and a cultural um, uh, value that 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 I have. Um, I'm actually uh, Chinese American, and I actually grew up in circumstances that were really pretty modest. Um, neither of my parents got past 10th grade. And so, you know, I started school, I, I was um, born and raised in New York City. Started school, you know, uh, under what we think of as, as a situation where there are a lot of risk factors for not, not doing well in school or not finishing. I was, uh, I was a, uh, you know, I was a first generation college student. Um, I was not a native, native English speaker. I came from a low income family. But thankfully, I had really good teachers, and school was something I just really liked and really took to, and you know, just really did well, and really helped me to be able to to go on to, to you know, um, some really great universities and a really great career. Um, so, so the valuing of education and appreciation of education stems a lot from my own personal um, my own personal experiences, but it's also the case. One of the reasons I like uh, being involved with the Stockton program is, um, you know, I value very much the intellectual development of my students. Um, you know, that's something I, I continue to, to try to do myself personally to both help them, but also for me, I, I like to continue to learn. I like to continue to learn new ideas. I'm enjoying learning from my students. You know, they're, they're studying topics that are things I don't know that much about, so it's a chance for me to learn new things. Okay. So I, I saw, I looked up your LinkedIn just so I could mm -hmm. have some background. Sure. And uh, I saw you were at Rutgers University for 17 years as an associate professor, but then mm -hmm. you went on to ETS, the Educational Testing Center. What mm -hmm. made you move from the, the public education to the private sector? You know, it was just really an opportunity to, to go somewhere to, to be able to make use of my expertise. Um, I felt like my department was not really going in a good direction. So um, fortunately, I live pretty close to, uh, to, to ETS, uh, which is outside of Princeton. And so because my area is actually educational measurement, it was a really good fit for me to go there. Um, it also gave me a chance to really kind of develop my own um, managerial and leadership skills, uh, which I really didn't have when I was a faculty member. And so going to ETS, I, I started as a, as a senior research scientist. Um, then became um, uh, manager and then uh, a research director. So when I was there, I was leading a research group with uh, 10 PhD level research scientists. And so that was really an opportunity. That was something I really wanted to develop in myself, which was an opportunity to be able to help other researchers, more junior researchers develop. What type of research did you do while, while you were on ETS? So two things. So when I, when I joined ETS in 2006, I was hired to help them develop a, a line of research on English learners. 
Uh, at that time, ETS had not really had a line of research on English learners in terms of uh, teaching and assessing them accurately and validly. And so that was what I was hired to do. Um, and then uh, after doing that for six years, I transitioned to being director of their higher education research group, which is actually kind of the more natural fit for me. And so one of the, one of the roles that I had uh, in, in that position, I was actually the research coordinator for the graduate record exam, uh, the GREs. And so one of the things, oh, wow. yeah, and so one of the things I did in that role was I managed the GRE research budget, which is about $1.5 million per year. So there are a lot of ongoing uh, validity studies to ensure that the GRE continues to be the best, the best assessment of, uh, of graduate admissions. Uh, and so that, that was what I did um, in my, uh, in my last role at ETS. Just wondering, um, mm -hmm. with ETS, who is their biggest competitor? Would it be Pearson? Yeah, so the, the space is interesting. Um, uh, ETS has lots of competitors, uh, most of whom are in the for-profit sector. So when it comes to large-scale state tests, things like Smarter Balance and Park, yes, their biggest competitor would be Pearson. But then they also compete against ACT when it comes to college admissions testing. So ETS produces the SAT under contract for the college board. And so the biggest competitor of the SAT is the ACT exam. Uh, ETS is also involved in English proficiency testing. So for students who want to go to university in an English speaking country where their own language is, is not English, they would have to take a test of English proficiency. And so their, their uh, test in that arena is TOEFL, the test of English as a foreign language. Uh, and their biggest competitor would be Cambridge University in England, which also has a competitor test for students, for example, who are from, say, China, who want to go to university in the UK or in the United States. Wow. I never even really thought about all of that. That's mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you leave ETS, yeah. and what happens next? So uh, the, the next role I had, I was the head of research for the International Baccalaureate Organization. Uh, the IB has been around for more than 50 years, originally started by a group of British educators who were teaching in Europe. And uh, the goal of the IB really is to train students to create a, a better and more peaceful world. Uh, a lot of the origins of the IB came from after the end of the Second World War. And educators thought about ways that they can help reduce conflict uh, around the world. And so uh, I, I uh, had the position, I was the head of research for the organization. Um, this is an organization that has uh, about 2 million students in schools around the world that are in one of its programs. Um, I was in their North American office in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, and I held that position for two and a half years. Um, I led the research department, which was a staff of 12. And I actually had staff uh, in offices on continents and uh, in, in offices in three continents around the world. So it was really, it was really an interesting uh, role to be in. Um, I, I was one of the, the top uh, uh, individuals in the organization. Um, and because the work is international, gave me a chance to learn more about K-12 education around the world in different countries, um, but also gave me a chance to travel to um, one of the IB offices in Europe is in The Hague in the Netherlands. So I would go there two, three times a year and really got to know The Hague and got to travel around the Netherlands, got to go to conferences, 
you know, all over the world in Japan and Spain and Canada and other places. And wow. uh, a couple of those conferences in Europe, my wife came with me. So it's really great to be able to, to travel and do that. Got to see a lot of cities. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Did you get to go in their uh, public schools and actually see it in action? Yeah, we did. We did. We went to one school. We actually did a workshop at, a, at an IB school in Yokohama, Japan. That was really pretty interesting. What was the biggest difference in their school from the American school system you know, between the, Japan and the U.S.? Gosh, there's so many differences. Um, you know, a, a country like Japan is just much more homogeneous than, than it is here. Um, but there's also a difference in just simply the way that, that we think of education, that we approach education and the goals of education. Um, it's a little bit stereotypical, but I think it is true that... Um, one of the great things about the American educational system is because there is a lot of freedom. I think we do foster creativity in some ways better than anybody else. So I think that's kind of the great strength of, of the American uh, educational system. Wow, that's so nice to hear. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. So so then you went on and now you work at Student Achievement Partners. Mm -hmm. that's right. Could you tell us more, more about that? Yeah, so I've been in the role about two years now. Uh, Student Achievement Partners is the educational consulting group that was founded by developers of the Common Core Standards. Uh, the company has been in existence uh, about 10 years. And so the mission of the organization is to help uh, support schools uh, and, and uh, districts and states in implementing the Common Core Standards. So the, the two main things that we emphasize one is standards-aligned teaching, so teaching to what the standards say is, is high-quality education, and then also emphasizing and helping, helping those organizations uh, really pick, and pick up and rely on high-quality instructional materials. Okay, what are you researching right now? Most, most of the things I'm doing right now tend to be internal. Um, one of the things that we're currently looking at and this is something you and I, Terry, had talked about a little bit, is this idea about coherent instructional systems. Um, it's not a completely new line of thinking, but the idea is that education, like many other things, should be thought of in a systems perspective. And so for a school district to really be effective, it's not simply enough to make one change, like adapting new curriculum or, or um, increasing their teacher professional development but there's about six things that need to happen in conjunction. And so one of the things that we're doing right now is doing a study to try to understand where there are successful districts that are doing this, um, districts of all sizes, of, of various characteristics, and how is it that they're successful and doing this well while other districts are struggling? So trying to use this as a way to learn and be able to help bring that information to, to others in public education. Okay. Wow. Sounds like you had quite an extensive career and we're super lucky to have you at Stockton to help with the dissertations. Uh, speaking of dissertations, uh -huh. um, we were hoping that you would have some tips for, for trying to hone in on a topic for uh, newer students or any tips you would say when picking a dissertation since you have so much experience with this and I literally have none. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Sure. So, uh, Picking a dissertation topic really is a pretty individualized experience. Uh, what I would say kind of at the high level is to pick something that you're really interested in and hopefully something that you're passionate about. 
because this is this is something that's going to be um, a project you're going to be living with for a couple of years. So you know you're going to be spending a lot of time thinking about it and learning from it. So find something you're interested in and um, and go from there. It could be something that you've encountered at work. It could be something that you've thought about earlier in your life, or maybe it's something you see now. Um, uh, but I would say pick something that 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 you know piques your interest in some way. Uh, I would also say too that if if this uh, if one of your goals for being in the program is that this will be a vehicle to help you further your career, then also look for something that you're interested in studying, not just for your dissertation, but beyond that. Um, you know, for the next several years, because this is the way you develop expertise um, by, by doing your own uh, investigations. And then hopefully, if this is something that you're really interested in, that you continue to build on it, that you do not just your dissertation, but that this is a line of work that you do for the next five years or 10 years. Um, I know that was true for me. Uh, my dissertation really helped me launch my career. And it was something that I continued to do work on for 15 years. And I, I was really pretty, pretty lucky and uh, had really good experiences. I had, I won multiple uh, national awards for my research. And so wow. all, that really, all that started from my dissertation. So I can tell you a little bit more about the, those of you, if you're interested. So when you wrote your dissertation, you got national awards or the national awards came afterwards? It came afterwards. The, the national awards came afterwards because the, the work I did on my dissertation helped lead me to then create or to develop not just a single study, but a series of studies, what more seasoned researchers think of as a research agenda. So an entire area of study or an entire line of work that you do. Wow. Yeah. These are terms I've never even heard of, a research agenda. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, and, and okay. as a, so, so both when I was at ETS, and also at the International Baccalaureate as someone who's in a more senior research position, that's what you're called upon to do, to help, to help guide the organization in terms of research direction for the next five years, for example, which, which is similar to what happens in other fields. But the idea is that you know enough about your field to help provide guidance and a vision about where you should be in five years. Dr. Young, I have a question. If you were mm -hmm. just starting out in doctoral program and you didn't know what the dissertation was or anything about it, where would you suggest getting resources? Is there a how-to video on YouTube or, or a show <laughs> or a journal that you would suggest? Um, that's a good question, Carrie. I think the only source that comes to the top of my mind, uh, there's a professional organization called APA, the American Psychological Association. I believe they publish a guide to dissertations. That's the only one that, that comes to my mind at the moment. I haven't really kept up uh, with these. Um, the other thing I would suggest if you're not sure is uh, most universities uh, keep copies of their students' completed dissertations. And those are usually housed in the library. So one thing I would suggest to students, I made this recommendation in my classes is to go and to go and find those out, see see if that's available, and to take a look to see what a completed dissertation looks like. Uh, if the library doesn't have copies, then check with some of the faculty because typically, by tradition, if a student completes their dissertation, they always give a copy to their to their dissertation chair, and so the faculty members would have a copy. Um, 
that's usually a good good idea. You know, I always say looking at good examples is a good thing to do. That's actually that's actually what I did too when I started when I was about to start my dissertation. I was able to go to the library and 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 find a copy of someone who is well known in my program and take a look at his dissertation as an example. Who inspired you to do your dissertation, Dr. Young? So some of the ideas I had already started um, thinking about for my dissertation were things that came about from my previous experience working at ETS as a research assistant. But in addition, uh, it also came about through discussions with the person who eventually became my dissertation advisor. Uh, and so through conversations with him, um, that's really you know, the process of developing the idea so that, that you do design a feasible study. So it was in, in consultation with my dissertation advisor. Um, I had a really positive experience working on my dissertation. Um, you know, it really was the first serious creative effort that I was doing on my own and had a really good good relationship with my advisor. He was just really um, somebody I really uh, learned a lot from, but also looked up to. And so some of the ways that I've learned to mentor students I've worked with really come from that relationship. Um, you know, because I had such a positive relationship, I want to be able to, to give that back to other students who, you know, who I'm working with. That's amazing. How, how did you change after you wrote your dissertation from before your dissertation? Like, did you find a significant personal change or interchange within yourself? So, so it's interesting. Uh, I would say it was more of an intellectual change. Um, students don't realize that when they start their dissertation, you, you often start and you think you know something about the topic. After you finish your dissertation, you realize how much more you understand the topic you're doing. Um, and that's kind of the nature of developing expertise. And I think that was true for me. And as I mentioned before, because I continue to do research in the area, I would say that after 10 years of studying similar things, after 10 years, I really felt like I really understood the topic even more. And, and I think that's just simply um, the nature of, of, you know, it takes time to really develop understanding and knowledge and expertise. And so after 10 years, I would say I really understood the topic better than, than when I had started, obviously. How do you think it impacted your parents who, who you mentioned um, only went up to 10th grade, that, that their son got a doctorate? Yeah, I think, I think my parents are uh, immensely proud. I'm not sure they completely understand all the things I was doing. Um, I remember talking to my parents, uh, uh, you know, in, in my native language, which was, which was Cantonese, and describing to them uh, the process of working on a dissertation. And the closest term I had was the word for book. So I always kind of wondered if my parents thought like my book would become a bestseller and jump in a bookstore or something. <laughs> um, but, but, but when I, from, from finishing my degree at, at Stanford, my first position was um, at Rutgers as a professor. And I think that part they understood because I think as you know, in many Asian cultures, the role of being a scholar is really revered and really is something that's appreciated. So I think that part they really, they really uh, enjoyed. Um, they did come to my graduation when I got my doctorate at Stanford. So um, I think that part was really kind of overwhelming for them because graduation uh, at the university happens at the stadium. So, you know, it's a wow. beautiful, beautiful sunny day in June, just 30,000 people uh, in the stadium. Oh my God, 30,000 people. Where, where are all those people? Like it's <laughs> the whole graduation from everybody? Is that... Yeah, so, so yeah, because it's both uh, undergraduates and graduate students. 
Um, so probably in a given year, there are more than probably more than 3,000 degrees that are awarded at graduation. And then you have speakers and you have um, people who come to the to, to, to ceremony. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of people who are there. 30,000 graduates plus their families and friends. Wow. What is one piece of advice that you would give to a doctoral student that doesn't like to read peer review articles? <laughs> I, I guess the advice would be to, to learn to start to, to, to like it because you'll be doing a lot <laughs> of it. Um, I would say probably the best single piece of advice I would give to any student is to really learn to, um, to make good use of the constructive criticism that you get from, from your faculty, your chair, and, and other people. Because I think by and large, people are there to try to help you. And I think it's really a good trait to have. It's really able to absorb what people tell you and to learn from it. Um, rather than, you know, taking it as, as personal criticism or to become defensive. Um, you know, I, I think the goal is really to help you improve your work. And I think the more you're able to do that, the better off you will be in the long run. All right. Well, thank you for so much of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the topic of dissertations before, you know, we leave for tonight? Sure. I guess the one thing I would say is that, you know, um, I know students often approach it with trepidation, which is understandable. Um, it, it is a task that's new to people. Uh, so, you know, there's kind of the uncertainty about that, but it can be a really positive experience. Um, you know, it's something that really can be, will be a big part of your life, but hopefully will be something that you'll be proud of when you're, when you're done. Um, and I would say as a faculty member, it is the part of graduate education that I enjoy most, working with students one-on-one. -on -one. Um, the one last story I'll leave with you, um, I think I mentioned to you that uh, I've been fortunate enough that, that I and people I've worked with have won national awards for, for research. So uh, I can tell you that the first student whose dissertation I served as chair uh, this was in 1994. Uh, my student actually won the award from the American Educational Research Association, which is uh, the largest and most prestigious uh, educational research association in the world. Uh, in our field, he won the dissertation for the best dissertation in the country. So, oh my God, that's yeah. amazing! So, uh, yeah. and he was he was the first he was the first uh, student whose dissertation I chaired, and so uh, I'm, I'm really glad that he was able to do that. I'm really proud that we were able to do that. I sometimes jokingly tell people that when that happened, I felt a little bit like Kevin Costner, the actor, because people might remember that the first movie that Kevin Costner ever directed was Dances with Wolves, which won the Oscar for Best Picture and Best Director. So, so after we won, I said, gee, I'm not sure how we're going to be able to top this because but, winning, winning no. on the first, first try is really pretty, pretty remarkable. So I that thought, is uh, Amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. What was his topic? Uh, his topic really was actually looking at uh, a new way to, to look at data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. So it's a very technical topic, but he developed a new scoring method, which, which uh, was really pretty impressive. And, and he was able to do so because it was something, a topic that he was familiar with um, from previously. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. We feel so lucky to have you at Stockton with your background that you chose us to make your home. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm really happy to be involved. I'm glad to, uh, to have the opportunity. I'm, 
thankful to, to Claudine for the opportunity to, to do this. Um, you know, it stems from a conversation we had more than six years ago. So, you know, you never know where, where life will take you, but I'm really glad at this point in my career to have the opportunity to continue to work with doctoral students. It's really been uh, one of the really highlights of my life. So I'm glad to be able to give back to Stockton for that. Well, we're hoping to have you for a long time. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Doctors and Dissertations with Carrie Zeliniak, Episode 1. I'd like to thank Anchor.fm for providing this website to create this wonderful podcast. Until next time.